This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. On July 7, 1925, renowned American orator and politician William Jennings Bryan arrived in the small town of Dayton, Tennessee. He was there to begin the prosecution of John T. Scopes, a 24-year-old high school science teacher accused of illegally teaching his students about human evolution. Having successfully campaigned for the passage of the Butler Act, which made it a misdemeanor for public school teachers to instruct their students on human evolution, the impending trial against Scopes was a chance for the highly religious Brian to confirm the legality of anti-evolution laws he hoped would be enacted throughout the United States. The residents of Dayton greeted Brian like a conquering hero, with almost a thousand people swarming him as he stepped onto the train platform, Wearing a tropical pith helmet to combat the sweltering heat, the 65-year-old Brian looked the part of a dignified explorer ready to bring his vision of civilization to a foreign land. But in order for Brian's dream for American society to become a reality, he would have to overcome a powerful opponent, legendary defense attorney Clarence Darrow. Arriving in Dayton late on July 9, 1925, the night before the trial was scheduled to begin, Darrow was met with much less fanfare than Brian, but there were motion picture cameras and newsmen on hand to capture Darrow greeting John Scopes, who had almost become an afterthought in the build-up to the heavyweight clash between Darrow and Brian. In the weeks leading up to the proceedings, the Scopes monkey trial had become about so much more than the question of whether or not he had taught human evolution. In fact, he readily admitted that he did. This was an ideological clash between Brian's majority rule and Darrow's individual rights, between legislative authority and freedom of expression, between religious belief and scientific knowledge. In short, it was a wrestling match over the very soul of America. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. Welcome to our second of two episodes on John T. Scopes. 
Last week, we examined the rise of the anti-evolution movement in the early 1920s that led to the establishment of the Butler Act, which barred public school teachers in Tennessee from teaching human evolution to their students. After the ACLU offered to cover the legal costs for any teacher willing to admit to teaching evolution, a group of Dayton citizens, known as the Drugstore Conspirators, convinced John T. Scopes to go on trial in order to bring publicity to their town. The gambit worked. When William Jennings Bryan and Clarence Darrow joined the prosecution and defense, respectively, publicity around the case skyrocketed. Billed as the trial of the century, the American people waited with bated breath for the case against Scopes to begin. This week, we'll focus on the trial itself, as Brian and Darrow turned the courtroom into their own personal battleground, they fought to determine whose personal ideals would decide the course of American society. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. On the morning of Friday, July 10th, 1925, Dayton's courthouse was packed beyond capacity. Over a thousand people were crammed inside in the hope of witnessing the first blows between 65-year-old William Jennings Bryan and 68-year-old Clarence Darrow. News outlets set up radio equipment in the courtroom to broadcast the Scopes trial throughout the country, allowing an unprecedented audience to listen in on the proceedings. Judge John T. Ralston entered, carrying a Bible and a law book, underscoring the connection between religion and government that the trial would address. The defense team entered next, with Darrow bringing up the rear. The moment the legendary attorney entered the courtroom, he shrugged off his coat like a boxer entering the ring. One of the reporters on the scene described how Darrow's huge, leathery-lined face was softened by the quizzical twinkle of his deep-set eyes. Once the defense team took their seats, all eyes in the courtroom turned back to the door. The moment William Jennings Bryan crossed the threshold, the audience broke into raucous applause. Courtroom decorum went out the window. Even Judge Ralston forgot himself in the moment, eagerly striding over to Bryan to shake his hand. But before Bryan sat at the prosecution's table, he headed towards the defense. The room suddenly went quiet, waiting to see what Darrow would do. But anyone in the audience hoping for conflict right off the bat were let down. Darrow simply stood up and the two men cordially shook hands. Clasping their hands on each other's shoulders, they posed for photographs with Judge Ralston. Before the trial officially commenced, a fundamentalist pastor delivered a long prayer, clearly taking a shot at the defense when he urged everyone involved in the trial to be loyal to God. Despite the supposed secular courtroom environment, it was obvious that religion would play a huge role in the proceedings. The jury was selected with little drama. 
the eager audience finally got a taste of courtroom intrigue when lead prosecutor Tom Stewart asked Judge Ralston to bar any expert testimony from the trial. The prosecution's strategy to win the case was to keep it narrowly focused on the simple issue of whether or not Scopes had taught evolution. Meanwhile, Stewart knew that the defense planned to pick apart the Butler Act itself with testimony from scientific and religious experts. Their entire argument was based on these experts discussing evolution and how it could coexist with the story of human creation as told in the book of Genesis. If Stewart could convince Judge Ralston to bar them from testifying, the defense would have virtually no case to present. Standard procedure would have been for Judge Ralston to consider whether the defense could call its expert witnesses after the prosecution had rested its case. But Darrow hoped to get the matter settled earlier in case he had to adjust his strategy. With the prosecution's blessing, Judge Ralston agreed to listen to the arguments for and against expert testimony the following Monday. The hotly anticipated clash between Darrow and Brian would have to wait a little longer. Then, over the weekend, the prosecution lawyers changed their minds. They didn't want to hand Darrow and his team any extra advantages, but Darrow remained undaunted. He still had a few tricks up his sleeve. From the outset of the proceedings on Monday, July 13, 1925, Darrow proved that he was up for the legal drama that the courtroom's capacity crowd hoped to witness. He immediately moved for the case to be thrown out on the basis that the Butler Act was unconstitutional. If Judge Ralston eventually decided to bar any expert testimony, then this would be their best chance to present their case against the anti-evolution law. The defense went first with John Neal and Arthur Garfield Hayes presenting the initial argument. Who wanted to see an anti-evolution law passed, Scopes represented the minority of people who the Constitution protected. Next, Hayes presented an argument that a law couldn't be constitutional if it was inherently unreasonable. To prove his point, he compared the Butler Act to a hypothetical law barring teachers from teaching that the Earth revolved around the sun, that idea was once so controversial that the Vatican banned philosophers from teaching it. But as with evolution, just because a religious group might not like a scientific fact, that didn't make it any less true. Hayes asserted that if biology was to be taught, it couldn't be demanded that it be taught falsely. Lead prosecutor Tom Stewart stayed away from evolution's factual merits. Instead, he reduced the Butler Act to a logistical rather than religious law. He claimed the anti-evolution law was an effort on the part of legislature to control the expenditure of state funds, which it has the right to do. He argued that because the majority of Tennesseans didn't want evolution taught in public schools, the state legislature had a duty to exclude it from the curriculum on the grounds of fiscal responsibility. It was a strong, compelling argument, but it would soon be forgotten in the wake of Clarence Darrow's powerful rebuttal. Darrow directly addressed Stewart's argument as it pertained to the Tennessee state constitution. 
At the time, the U.S. Constitution granted more power to individual states than it does today. So in this case, the Tennessee Constitution took precedence. Darrow said, quote, We have been informed that the legislature has the right to prescribe the course of study in public schools. Within reason, they no doubt have, no doubt, but the people of Tennessee adopted a constitution, and they made it broad and plain, and said that the people of Tennessee should always enjoy religious freedom in its broadest terms. So I assume that no legislature could fix a course of study which violated that. With this argument, Darrow intended to forcibly broaden the case past the narrow scope Stewart wanted to confine it to. He framed the Butler Act as imposing a particular religious viewpoint upon public school students, thereby violating the state constitution. He argued that the state of Tennessee, under an honest and fair interpretation of the constitution, has no more right to teach the Bible as the divine book than that the Quran is one, or the Book of Mormon, or the Book of Confucius, or the Buddha, or the essays of Emerson. Darrow spoke for over two hours, with a deep passion against the danger he believed religious fundamentalism posed to American life. He argued that the Butler Act hearkened back to the glorious age of the 16th century, when bigots lighted faggots to burn men who dared to bring any intelligence and enlightenment and culture to the human mind. When he was finally done speaking, Darrow's fellow defense attorneys rushed forward to congratulate him like he had just landed the knockout blow in a heavyweight title bout. Many of the newspapers covering the trial hailed it as one of the most powerful arguments ever put forth in a courtroom. Telegraphs transmitted 200,000 words from the trial that day alone, a record number for a single event. But not everyone was moved by Darrow's argument, Many of Dayton's residents in the audience hissed when his speech concluded. The next day, a reporter covering the trial wrote that locally, the net effect of Clarence Darrow's great speech yesterday seems to be precisely the same as if he had balded up a rain spout in the interior of Afghanistan. Judge Ralston agreed with that sentiment. On the morning of Wednesday, July 15th, he delivered the ruling everyone expected he would. Scope's indictment would stand, and the trial would proceed as planned. Darrow's gambit had failed. If he hoped to win the case, he'd have to find another way. Coming up, the prosecution and defense put their witnesses on the stand and argue over the admissibility of expert testimony. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now back to the story. In July of 1925, Clarence Darrow was determined to exonerate his client, 24-year-old John Scopes. Darrow and his fellow defense lawyers spent the first few days of the trial arguing that the indictment should be vacated on the grounds that the Butler Act was unconstitutional. But Judge John Ralston was unmoved, and the trial proceeded. The prosecution began its case on the afternoon of Wednesday, July 15, 1925. Although William Jennings Bryan was by far the most famous attorney on the prosecution team, the lead counsel was local district attorney Tom Stewart. In accordance with his desire to keep the case as narrow in scope as possible, Stewart's opening statement was a paltry two sentences. Quote, it is the insistence of the state in this case that the defendant, John Thomas Scopes, has violated what is known as the anti-evolution law by teaching in the public schools of Ray County the theory tending to show that man and mankind is descended from a lower order of animals. Therefore, he has taught a theory which denies the story of divine creation of man as taught by the Bible. The prosecution's case lasted less than an hour, calling only four witnesses to the stand. Dayton School Superintendent Walter White testified that Scopes had admitted to White and other members of the so-called drugstore conspiracy that he had taught his students the theory of human evolution. This testimony proved that Scopes had violated the part of the Butler Act that barred public school teachers from instructing their students that man had descended from a lower order of animals. Next, Stewart had White identify the King James Bible as the text the Butler Act referred to in barring teaching any theory that denies the story of divine creation of man as taught in the Bible. Once the Bible was admitted into evidence, the defense seized the chance to sow a little chaos. On the defense, Arthur Garfield Hayes pointed out that there were dozens of versions of the Bible and that there is nothing in the statute that shows teachers should be controlled in their teaching by the King James Version. But Judge Ralston was unmoved. He overruled Hayes' objection, stating that in East Tennessee, the King James Bible was the Bible. Despite the defense's continued efforts to pick apart the Butler Act's language, the case wouldn't be halted on a technicality. After Walter White, the prosecution called two of Scope's students who confirmed they'd learned about human evolution. During cross-examination, Darrow pointed out that it didn't seem to have any negative impact on the two young men, who remained active church members even after what Scopes had taught them. Darrow's line of questioning didn't have much of a basis in the strict legal impact of the case. Rather, it was a direct shot at his nemesis, William Jennings Bryan, who argued in his crusade for anti-evolution laws that teaching human evolution to students 
would have a negative impact on their morals and religion. But if Darrow hoped to goad Brian into an argument, he was unsuccessful. Throughout the prosecution's case, Brian remained unmoved, silently fanning himself with a giant palm leaf in an effort to fight off the Tennessee summer's increasingly sweltering heat. The prosecution's final witness was Frank Robinson, a member of the Dayton School Board and, like Walter White, one of the original drugstore conspirators. After Robinson testified that Scopes admitted to teaching evolution, it was once again time for Darrow to cross-examine. He pointed out that Robinson sold copies of the state biology textbook, which contained a section on human evolution, in his drugstore. Because Robinson was a member of the school board, Darrow wondered if that meant he had also violated the Butler Act. Stewart countered that the law only prohibited public school employees from teaching human evolution, not from selling textbooks that described it. Although this exchange elicited smiles and laughter from all involved in the trial, it was clear Stewart worried that Darrow had created the slightest doubt surrounding the Butler Act's viability. Still, Stewart reasoned that he had proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Scopes had taught evolution and didn't call any further witnesses. The prosecution rested its case. The defense had decided ahead of time that Scopes wouldn't take the stand. Darrow never planned on having Scopes deny that he'd taught evolution. Instead, his goal was to show that teaching evolution didn't actually violate the law. Doing so would require extensive expert testimony on the topics of evolution and the Bible. To that end, the defense's first witness was zoologist Maynard M. Metcalf. He was the ideal witness for Darrow's strategy. As a professor at the Protestant Oberlin College, who also taught Sunday school, he perfectly straddled the line between the secular and spiritual worlds. But the moment Darrow asked Metcalf to explain how evolution related to the origin of man, Tom Stewart jumped up and objected. Stewart argued the case was about the simple question of whether or not Scopes had taught evolution, not parsing out the nuances of the Butler Act's language. But Judge Ralston agreed to listen to Metcalf's testimony before making a ruling. If he thought it was pertinent to the case, he'd allow it to stand. If not, it would be stricken from the record. First, Metcalf explained that evolution and the theory of evolution were two completely different things. He argued, quote, the fact of evolution is a thing that is perfectly and absolutely clear, but there are many points, theoretical points as to the methods by which evolution has been brought about, that we are not yet in possession of scientific knowledge to answer. Then Darrow wanted Metcalf to address how evolution related to the Bible and how the two could coexist with each other. Darrow's hope was that he could exonerate Scopes by proving that Scopes hadn't taught evolution in a way that denied the story of the divine creation of man as taught in the Bible. But by the time Metcalf was ready to discuss evolution as it pertained to the Bible, the day was coming to a close. He would have to resume his testimony the next morning. However, when proceedings began on the morning of Thursday, July 16th, 
Tom Stewart moved to bar Metcalf from testifying any further before the issue of expert testimony was resolved. The cordial atmosphere that had permeated the trial's last few days went out the window as both sides fought tooth and nail over whether expert testimony should be allowed. First, the prosecution once again claimed that there was no need for nuance in determining whether or not Scopes was guilty. They argued to Judge Ralston that expert testimony would be to substitute trial by experts for trial by jury and to announce to the world Your Honor's belief that this jury is too stupid to determine a simple question of fact. The defense immediately fired back. They repeated their argument that the wording in the Butler Act forbade teaching anything that contradicted the story of the creation of humanity as told in the Bible. Therefore, if they could show evolution didn't necessarily conflict with the Bible, then Scopes didn't technically break the law. Before Judge Ralston made his ruling, the prosecution had a chance for rebuttal. Both sides believed that Ralston's ruling on expert testimony would essentially decide the case. With the stakes at an all-time high, the prosecution team decided it was finally time to bring out the big guns. The rebuttal would be delivered by William Jennings Bryan himself. During his hour-plus speech, Bryan lived up to his reputation as one of the greatest orators in American history. He deftly weaved between the prosecution's legal argument against expert witnesses with his own moral opposition to teaching evolution. Holding up a copy of the textbook Scopes used to teach his students, he exclaimed, There is the book they were teaching your children that man was a mammal and so indistinguishable that they leave him there with 3,499 other mammals. On the topic of expert testimony, Brian opined that when it comes to Bible experts, do they think that they can bring them in here to instruct members of the jury? The one beauty about the Word of God is it does not take an expert to understand it. The conclusion of Brian's speech could barely be heard through the audience's thunderous applause. But the defense was allowed to make its final rebuttal before Judge Ralston made his decision. However, it wasn't Clarence Darrow who spoke. It was Dudley Malone, the twice-divorced, New York-based Roman Catholic. Nobody thought he had any chance of adequately responding to Brian's fiery speech. Malone knew that he could never match Brian's overwhelming passion, so he captured the audience's attention by speaking quietly. Malone's speech centered on the defense's belief that the Butler Act violated Scope's individual freedoms. In order to defend those freedoms, the defense needed the testimony of its expert witnesses. Using language just as colorful as Brian's, Malone declared, we have come here for this duel, but does the opposition mean by duel that one defendant shall be strapped to a board and that they alone shall carry the sword? Is our only weapon, the witnesses who shall testify to the accuracy of our theory, is our only weapon to be taken from us? We feel we stand with science. We feel we stand with intelligence. We feel we stand with fundamental freedom in America. We are not afraid. 
We ask your honor to admit the evidence as a matter of correct law, as a matter of sound procedure, and as a matter of justice to the defendant. The raucous applause that greeted the conclusion of Malone's speech dwarfed the reception that Brian's speech had garnered. The cheering was so loud that it seemed like Judge Ralston would have no choice but to allow the defense's expert witnesses. But the prosecution was allowed to present yet another rebuttal, and that honor fell to the lead prosecutor, Tom Stewart. Just as Dudley Malone had done, Stewart knew that he'd need to take a different approach to stand out from the brilliant speeches that had previously enraptured the audience. With both Brian and Malone stoking people's passions and senses of justice, Stewart fell back on what he believed the trial was really about, the law. Turning toward the audience, Stewart asked, who can come here to say what is the law is not the law? What will these scientists testify? They will say evolution was simply the method by which God created man. I don't care. The act says you cannot teach it. But Stewart couldn't resist adding his own beliefs into the mix. He told the audience, quote, We have the right to participate in scientific investigation. But, if the court please, when science strikes upon that which man's eternal hope is founded, then I say the foundation of man's civilization is about to crumble. They say it is a battle between religion and science. If it is, I want to serve notice now, in the name of the great God, that I am on the side of religion, because I want to know beyond this world that there might be an eternal happiness for me and for others. Once again, the audience broke into wild applause. Both sides had made their case. The task of deciding whether or not to allow expert testimony now fell squarely on Judge Ralston's shoulders. And whoever he sided with was sure to win the case. Coming up, the Scopes Monkey Trial concludes with a legendary clash of the Titans. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And now back to the story. On Thursday, July 16, 1925, both sides in the Scopes monkey trial argued for and against the inclusion of expert testimony on behalf of the defense. After stirring ovation by William Jennings Bryan, Dudley Malone, and Tom Stewart, Judge Ralston announced his decision on the morning of Friday, July 17th. As most people had expected, 
Ralston ruled in favor of the prosecution. Expert testimony would not be admitted. However, he would allow the defense to submit written affidavits or to read prepared statements from their witnesses. Although this decision would allow the experts' testimonies to be used for any potential appeals, it all but ended the defense's hopes of winning the current trial. Judge Ralston gave the defense the rest of the day and the weekend to prepare the statements. After the fiery speeches volleyed the day before, it seemed like the trial was destined to fizzle out with barely a whimper. Most of the covering journalists left over the weekend, and spectators who had come to Dayton from out of town went back home. But while the prosecution team celebrated what they believed was their imminent victory, Clarence Darrow formulated a final Hail Mary strategy for the defense. Although much of the press corps had left Dayton, a large audience still gathered to hear what they believed would be the trial's closing arguments on the morning of Monday, July 20th, 1925. After a slow morning of procedural debate over how to properly add the defense's expert testimonies into the record, Judge Ralston announced he would hold the afternoon's proceedings on the massive speaking platform on the courthouse lawn. In addition to providing some respite from the oppressive heat in the courtroom, holding the afternoon session outdoors would also allow a larger audience to watch Darrow and Brian's closing arguments. But Darrow wasn't ready to give up just yet. Much to everyone's surprise, he announced that he wanted to call one last witness to the stand. But it wasn't an aloof scientist or stuffy Bible scholar from an ivory tower. It was a simple man of faith, one who could speak on the religious beliefs of ordinary citizens. It was William Jennings Bryan. As all eyes turned to Bryan, the entire prosecution team jumped to their feet to object. But the choice to testify lay solely with Bryan. The legendary orator knew Darrow was setting him up, but he didn't care. He was passionate about his faith, and he was willing to defend it by any means necessary. Word quickly spread throughout Dayton that Brian was going to testify, and the crowd on the courthouse lawn swelled from about 500 people to over 3,000. The moment Brian was sworn in, Darrow peppered him with questions about the literal interpretation of the Bible. Did Brian believe that a whale actually swallowed Jonah and that he was then able to live for three days inside it? Did God make the earth stand still in order to lengthen the day? Did the Great Flood really happen in 2348 BCE? Although Brian tried to steadfastly maintain his belief in the Bible as it was written, Darrow prodded him into admitting some of its writings were open to interpretation. For instance, he admitted that he believed that the earth was far older than the 4,000 years that was printed in the King James Bible, and that the six days of creation were probably longer than 24 hours. Throughout the nearly two-hour testimony, Tom Stewart tried to stop the proceedings multiple times, but Brian refused to get off the stand. He was determined to defend his religion and protect the word of God against the greatest atheist or agnostic in the United States. By the time Darrow was done questioning Brian, both men were on their feet, shaking their fists at each other. 
For a moment, it seemed like their proverbial boxing match was going to become a literal one. It made for great theater, but Judge Ralston realized the proceedings were getting out of hand and adjourned court for the day. That night, the reporters who had remained in Dayton sent their accounts of Brian's testimony to newspapers all across the country. While some applauded him for bravely defending his faith, most of the stories declared the testimony a decisive victory for Darrow. Tom Stewart seemed to agree. He told Brian that he shouldn't agree to continue his testimony. If he did, Stewart threatened to dismiss the case against Scopes entirely. Although Brian wanted to redeem himself, he agreed to stay off the stand. On the following morning, Tuesday, July 21, 1925, Ralston announced that Brian's testimony would be stricken from the record, as it did not pertain to the question of whether or not Scopes had taught evolution. With no tricks left up his sleeve, Darrow rested the defense's case and declined to deliver a closing argument. By doing so, he threw one last jab at Brian. He wouldn't be allowed to deliver a closing argument of his own. It took the jury less than 10 minutes to deliver their verdict. Guilty. Although the law dictated that the jury should decide how much to fine scopes, they allowed Judge Ralston to decide the amount. Ralston set the fine at $100, about $1,400 today. Tom Stewart was concerned about this breach of protocol, but Ralston assured him it was in keeping with local practice. And with that, a case that had been labeled the trial of the century came to a close. But the battle over the legality of the Butler Act wasn't over. Shortly after the trial ended, the ACLU filed an appeal to the Tennessee Supreme Court. However, William Jennings Bryan wasn't able to take part in the proceedings. On July 26, 1925, just a few days after the trial against John Scopes concluded, the 65-year-old Brian passed away while taking an afternoon nap. His funeral was declared a state holiday. Brian's crusade for anti-evolution laws had a lasting impact. The prosecution's victory in the Scopes monkey trial led Mississippi to pass its own law outlawing the teaching of human evolution. In the fall of 1925, the governor of Texas ordered the State Textbook Commission to remove any mention of the theory of evolution from books. Those hoping to stem the anti-evolution movement's rising tide would have to wait nearly 18 months until the Scopes case went before the Tennessee Supreme Court in May of 1927. Unlike the original trial's carnival-like atmosphere, the Scopes' appeal was a much more somber affair. The arguments the five Tennessee Supreme Court justices heard were very similar to what each side had presented during the first trial. The prosecution maintained that because the state legislature created the public schools, it had the right to exercise power over them. Meanwhile, the defense claimed that the Butler Act interfered with public school teachers and students' individual liberties by promoting a particular religious belief over modern scientific knowledge. In the end, the Supreme Court upheld the Butler Act's validity in a 3-2 decision. In the court's view,
the Butler Act applied to teachers working in an official capacity. They weren't required to remain public school employees, so the law didn't interfere with their individual liberties. If a teacher wished, he or she could teach at a private school that allowed evolution to be taught. On the issue of religion, the court ruled that the Butler Act didn't require any specific viewpoint to be taught, meaning there wasn't any preference given to any specific religious establishment. While the court upheld the Butler Act's constitutionality, it also overturned Scope's original conviction on the basis that Judge Ralston had fixed the amount of the fine rather than the jury. Although both the prosecution and the defense had agreed to this irregular procedure, the Tennessee Supreme Court used it as an excuse to reverse the conviction and therefore prevent Scopes from appealing his case to the United States Supreme Court. The Tennessee Supreme Court's decision meant that the anti-evolution movement would remain in a sort of stasis for the next few decades. While there weren't any more efforts to challenge anti-evolution laws in court, only a few other southern states passed laws restricting the teaching of evolution. The anti-evolution movement never became the national phenomenon William Jennings Bryan hoped it would. The opponents of anti-evolution laws finally had the chance to resume their fight in 1947, when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that neither a state nor the federal government could pass laws which aid one religion, aid all religions, or prefer one religion over another. Additionally, the 1948 case McCollum v. Board of Education banned any religious instruction in public schools. Using this case as a springboard, pro-evolutionists finally got the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn a law banning the teaching of evolution in the 1968 case Epperson v. Arkansas. Although anti-evolutionists have attempted to pass laws banning or restricting the teaching of evolution in the ensuing years, their efforts have been repeatedly halted. But the tug of war between science and religion carries on. A 2018 poll by the Pew Research Center indicated that 33% of U.S. adults believed humans evolved through purely natural processes. 48% believed humans evolved through God or another higher power. And 18% believed God created humans in their present form. As the Scopes Monkey Trial demonstrated, the question of human evolution and its relationship to religion has a unique power over American hearts and minds. With opinions still clearly split, the conflict over evolution is unlikely to end anytime soon, and perhaps it never will. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. 
It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Alex Benedon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.